You may contribute a verse. I'm Josh Munkin, and this is the podcast You Make a Tribute Verse, which has a simple mandate to give voice to creators, their struggles, successes, and the stories of their creation. And now, aside from sharing their stories, getting to know creators I value is really the whole point of doing this podcast thing. The risk in getting to know a creator is that they won't turn out to be who you think, or at least add no dimension to their work. Suffice it to say that if I ever have one of those conversations, I won't publish it. There are also creators whose public presence confirms who you thought, or who you hoped they were, deepening your enjoyment of their work through their words and creations. Then there are creators like my guest today, debut author Ryan Van Lone, whose fresh insight and earnest goodwill go beyond what's on the page or in the work and build you into a fan. These are the conversations I strive to have and consistently manage to find, which I hope comes out in our chats. Check the archive. Ryan Van Loan's debut novel, The Sin in the Steel, was released on July 21st of this year. It buckles the swashes and takes us on a journey of magic, manipulation, mayhem, and monsters across a fantastical sea as a young, violently scrappy investigator gets to the bottom of a mercantile mystery alongside her stalwart soldier compatriot. Here's Ryan's much better description. The Sin in the Steel is the story of Sambukinia Bakalhura. She is a Sherlockian teenager, autodidact, street rat, who uh, is the first private investigator in her world. And her and her partner in crime solving, Eld, who's a uh, suspiciously good swordsman, um, find themselves tasked with uh, discovering why ships are disappearing in the far-flung reaches of, of the world. It goes deeper than all that, though. The sort of thing that gets glossed over in a lot of books gets confronted head-on in Sin. The trauma and presence of violence, even past its end, is a major factor that the heroes Buck and Eld face, and despite how prevalent conflict is in his novel, we don't revel in it. The story also does revel in found family and the growth of love over time you can feel for those with whom you walk the path of your life. There's another unavoidable reality we cover a lot in our chat, and that's timing, both of publication as well as of career. Ryan's no stranger to writing, but it was only after a long string of attempts that publishing caught up with him. And to release your debut novel in 2020 is no joke, forcing a change in mindset and a radical shift in how you approach reaching an audience without any previous cachet. Uh, Let's get into it, though. Let's go now to Ryan Van Loan's verse. You know, I'm a reader first and I'm a fan first. And so my, you know, me coming to the page started because uh, I've been a lifelong reader and just just really enjoyed that. And then I started to have ideas um, of books that I wanted to see that I wasn't seeing or stories that I wanted to see told that I, I wasn't getting enough of. And, um, and slowly started to think, not with every book, certainly, but with some books when I finished them, you know, I think I could, I think I could write a better story than this. And I think that's probably how a lot of people get started. Um, but, you know, the way I think of myself, I guess, and, and what I'm trying to do on the page is you know, I, I, you have to write for yourself first because you never know if anyone else is going to read it. And so, you know, if, if you're your only fan, at least make sure that, you know, you're, you're an excited fan. So, you know, I try to tell stories that I'm interested in and, and if they resonate with others, that's, that's great. 
I think, you know, what I also try to do is I want to make sure that folks see themselves or able to see facets of themselves in the books that I'm writing. It doesn't mean paint by the numbers or anything like that, but I think it does mean writing a, um, a wide cast of characters with a wide range of backgrounds and thought processes and experiences. And so, you know, that's, that's all going on in the background. And then first and foremost, you know, I'm writing adventure fantasy, so I want folks to have fun. So I'm just trying as a creator, I think, to write fun, engaging stories that have heart to them, that are serious at times, that have some thematic elements that I think resonate with me and in, in, in the world. And, uh, you know, ideally folks walk away from it thinking, wow, you know, I feel seen. Um, and maybe also, uh, I haven't thought about that in this particular way before, um, which sounds serious. I don't think about that when I'm actually writing, um, because I think theme with a capital T is something that, that needs to come out naturally. And maybe in a revision, you can call it out. But when I sit down to write, I'm not necessarily thinking actively about all of that, but it's certainly floating around in the background. You don't think beforehand, and, and this comes up, um, I guess, recently on, or has come up recently on Twitter with um, with character or plot coming first. And I find myself, if I think about stories that I would want to write, um, I find myself unable to um, firmly put myself in the character's choices enough in a role-playing way. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I need to structure things out beforehand. Um which I think maybe has been for the times that I've tried to write problematic um, where you get to a point where the character needs to make a choice or you need to further the story and, um, and you can't just force it. Um, How do you, uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's whatever, whatever works best for you. Um, All writing advice, whatever works best for you, use it, hold it close. If it doesn't work for you, just get rid of it. Because um, there's no one right way to to write a book, um, and at the end of the day, the reader doesn't know what went into it. They just they just know what they're reading on the page, and that's that's really what counts. But for me, um, I am a very much a character driven writer, which seems strange because, and you know, we can get into it if you'd like. I'm I'm also uh, an incredibly detailed outliner. I have uh, story structures that I'm using to help you know shape the the plot of the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, I, I, you know, my first draft is really the outline because it's, it's so in depth. And then the second draft is actually the first prose draft. Um, but I do, I do let character drive those decision-making points. And for me, it's not necessarily something that I have a great handle on from an intentional standpoint, by which I mean, I, uh, I very organically get these ideas. Um, and so this part might not be useful to, to listeners, uh, or, or you, Josh, but for me, what happens is a, um, a voice just pops into my head. Uh, it'll normally be during a quiet time, uh, you know, I'm going for a walk or, you know, I'm in the shower or, uh, I just woke up and a voice will pop into my head. Um, normally it's the character like actually talking and they're not talking to me. They're just talking and it'll be a line or two and that's it. And then what'll happen is if it's a, if it's going to turn into a story that's going to just shoot uh, a bunch of lightning bolts through my brain and connections are going to start firing. And I'm going to start thinking about who this character is and what do they want? And, um, you know, based upon what I'm hearing, what's the, what do I think the the world is that they've grown up in? Uh, so that all drives the initial thought processes. And then from there, I do get much more 
formulaic and thinking about, okay, well, you know, what are the rules? What are the plot points? What are the big beats and main arcs of the story? But it does start with character first for me. I've never had a, um, a, a plot idea where it was like, oh, this world would be really cool or this magic system or what have you. Uh, that turned into a book. It doesn't mean that I don't have those ideas and I jot them down and then sometimes uh, a story will come to me and I can like kind of steal those elements on the back end, but it, it's never been at the forefront of, of how I generate the, the beginning ideas of a story. Yeah, and I <clears throat> I had read that Buck kind of popped fully formed into your head uh, like a Greek myth, but like how how much <laughs> of her popped into your head? I mean, what did, what did that look like? But with her, it was it was definitely the idea that Okay, so here's this, um, you know, very, uh, very intelligent, hyper intelligent, um, also hyper violent uh, young woman, and so why is she so smart, and why why is she so violent? And so, you know, I'm not really into writing uh, anti heroes. I think Buck is pretty harsh, especially in the beginning of the story, and so some folks might think she is, but to me, she never was. It was she's very much shaped by the environment she grew up in. Uh, which was, you know, a uh, very harsh existence on the streets um, in mercantilism, capitalism state, and uh, where, you know, if you don't have something to give to somebody else, you, you really don't hold any value. But, you know, and this is no spoiler, you know, in the very beginning, she tells us that, you know, she's determined to change the world so that nobody else has to grow up like her. So I think that saves her from kind of your classic anti-hero um, grim, dark type setting, which which wasn't what I was trying to do. It was definitely gritty, but it wasn't meant to be grim. Um, so there's there's a lot. You were going back to you saying um, that uh, there's you want to make sure that everybody can take something away. Uh, there's something for everybody in here: um, uh, the undead and magic and swordsmanship and and guns and all that sort of thing. Was there ever a point at which it was like it was a lot to world build? Um, I, and I don't, I don't know anything about the rest of the manuscripts that you've written. I know there's been a lot, but how does this compare in terms of complexity of, of universe? Yeah, oh, it's a good question. I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked it. I mean, I think, so my, my basis as a, as a reader has always been, you know, epic fantasy is my, my first true and endearing love. Um, from Robin Hobb, who's written, you know, a bunch of trilogies that are essentially one long series uh, spanning decades to Robert Jordan and uh, Brandon Sanderson and everything in between. Um, so that's that's always been there. And they all have, the thing that they all have in common is, you know, very rich, complex societies and worlds and history and depth. Now, that doesn't mean that I get super excited about, you know, world building out everything that's happened, like, like a Tolkien type, you know, here's the 20 appendices that tell the history of my world as if a historian had written them. That's, that's not really me. But what I do enjoy are complex, fascinating worlds where you can almost feel like when you put the book down, the world's still going on, or, you know, you'll read something, uh, a throwaway line from a character that suggests that there is something much deeper going on in a certain segment. Those things have always attracted me. And so I think all of my books probably from the the jump have been you know that sort of element where i do really want a complex world i do want a lot going on in the background not all of it's going to be fully explained because not all of it is germane to the story i'm telling but i want the reader to feel like this is a world that's been lived in um and then i think if you're telling a uh you know if you have compelling characters if you have a fascinating story that's going to pull readers through. So even if somebody, you know, comes to a, a book and isn't necessarily huge into world building, but really just cares about character, or really just wants a really fun read, 
Um, I think that's going to carry them through. And then for those folks that are maybe looking for a little bit more, they're going to find that as well. Did you find yourself um, going back to, you know, things that are, are maybe hinted at and not fully explained? Did you find yourself in various drafts of this or other books writing things that you had to cut out just because you, you kind of wanted to explain them if for no other reason than to yourself? Um, is there world building that happens on the page that just doesn't, it just doesn't fit in the narrative of the story? Sometimes I'm actually, uh, one of those rare, maybe not so rare, but you don't hear it talked about a lot. I'm, I tend to be an underwriter. So, um, typically the draft that I send out to my agent and my editor, uh, is, is, you know, about 10%, I'll add about 10% in future edits based upon them asking me to flesh things out. Um, you know, sometimes I don't put enough on the page. And so I actually end up writing more. Now that said, there was the, you know, the original version of Buck and Eld's story. Uh, the third act was a little bit different. I introduced some, some plot elements and some world elements that, you know, weren't really explained up until that point because they just never came up. And, um, I think it was a little too much, uh, for, for folks. So we ended up cutting that out and I, I redid the, the third act so that it's, it's much more dependent on what comes in act one and two, and it doesn't introduce a whole lot of, of new things that would, you know, kind of shake things up. That said, um, in later books, we do start to get some of those things that I removed there. Um, and I know I'm being a little vague, but that's just because, you know, spoiler reasons. But eventually, we'll, someday I'll be able to talk about, you know, what specifically was cut out of out of book one and, and where it shows up in book two and book three. Um, so those sorts of things happen. But typically, uh, I have a really solid idea of what I'm trying to tell and what I'm going with it before I actually start writing prose. So there's not a whole lot of cutting that goes on there. Um, like I said, if anything, it's a little bit of the reverse. And it sounds like if anything needs to be cut, it can be repurposed. Sometimes. Sometimes, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> one thing I did do that, that I, I was just a, a thing for me to laugh at is, um, you know, Buck throughout the story, uh, she's, she's an autodidact and that's kind of one of her in quote superpowers that she draws upon books she's read to help her gain knowledge in certain situations to kind of get the upper hand. And at the back of the book, um, there's an annotated library of, of the books that she mentions throughout there. You know, we find out the, the author's name and, uh, you know, kind of a narration of a little bit of synopsis of what the book is about. And then we have like Buck's notes on like what she noted from that book. And one of those, um, and this, I don't think again, is, is any sort of spoiler, but one of those is uh, black flag shadow, which was the original working title I had for the book before we sold it. Um, and then we changed it for a variety of reasons. And I really love the sin and the steel. I think it, it probably is a better title, but uh, in when I, when I went out uh, and got my agent was on that title. And so, you know, I was able to repurpose that and kind of slip it in. And I'm not even sure if, if either my agent or my editor noticed, but I was, I was chuckling to myself when I did that one. How much of the, those books, and I, I, I read the ebook version, so I, I didn't, I guess, realize that, uh, that you had that sort of uh, bibliography in the back until the, the very end. How much of that did, did you develop? I mean, you've, you're writing like a library of, of these fictional books that, uh, that Buck has, has consumed yeah, I mean, and memorized. It's a lot. It is a lot. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, I agreed to the annotated library. My, my publisher suggested it, that it would be fun for a fun, like gift for readers at the end. And I agreed. And I, I do think it's fun. I underestimated how much work it was going to be because oftentimes that's one area right. where I didn't really flesh it out. So I would have Buck at a scenario 
They're like, how's she going to get out of this? And then I would think, okay, well, what knowledge would she need to get out of this? And where would she get it from? Sometimes it's from the streets and just past experience, but oftentimes it's, you know, she read this book and then, you know, we kind of get to see her thought process of, you know, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then it happens. And of course, once it happens in real life on the page, and it's not just in her thoughts, it changes a little bit because, you know, the the world's a living, breathing thing. Um, And that's a lot of fun. But then, yeah, when I got to the end and then I had to think, okay, well, you know, I had this, you know, book about um, physics that, that she mentions. And so this let her know this one thing that's, that was just a quick throwaway, but now I have to have, you know, a paragraph of, what the book is actually about and who the author is. And then I have to have, you know, at least a couple of lines of Buck's reaction to it. And that took a lot more time than I realized. Um, And uh, I'm doing that, you know, I'm kind of doing that now for book two, kind of why I did it for book two, went back and and went through it all. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot more than I, than I was planning on, but I think it is a nice Easter egg for readers, uh, especially if they're, they're the types that, you know, really enjoy libraries and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's kind of like author meta commentary. The thing that that it puts me in mind of the most is I'm thinking the princess bride, which is probably a foregone conclusion that you're a big fan of, Oh yeah, but I, the, um, the, the sword fight between Wesley and Inigo where they're referencing each other's forms, um, <laughs> yes, exactly. to help inform how they, how they, how they go forward fighting. Um, so when you were doing the elevator speech, you said that Eld is a suspiciously good swordsman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Buck is the main character, but he um, he is a force and is the other main character. He doesn't get his point of view, but you do. We hear a lot about yeah. him. He is talked about in the third person. I'm curious... Um, is he is he a cipher for for you and your experience or uh, talk about Eld as a character and why 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 you use those terms suspiciously good swordsman sure in particular so Eld is um, you know Eld and I share a little bit of a background in that you know we both have prior military experience uh, Eld's experience much worse than mine um, because you know we're ramping it up and amping it up for for fantasy and fiction and and that's just more exciting story. Um, but, you know, there's definitely some of me or some of my experiences or some of the experiences of friends uh, and uh, those who serve with me mixed in there. Um, it's definitely not a one-to-one, uh, but there's an influence there. And the reason why I say suspiciously is because the, the book is told through Buck's eyes. And, um, you know, especially early on, you know, Buck is very Machiavellian in her approach to things. Um, but she also is not super interested in things that, that detract from that. So even though her and Eld have been partners for several years at this point, she never really cared about his backstory because that wasn't important to what her aims and goals were. Um, so she doesn't realize, she knows that Buck is, or yeah, sorry, that Eld is, um, you know, competent, obviously, and she knows that he's probably a little bit more than competent, but we kind of see through this story, this is the first time that he's really cut loose and she starts to realize, wait a minute, you know, this guy is is really good and starts to have some questions about that, starts to appreciate that more. 
Uh, because the other thing to remember too is that Buck and Eld are both pretty pretty young. Um, you know, she's like seventeen, he's uh, nineteen, and while they both had a lot of life experience, um, you know, oftentimes not through choices of their own, they're still young, so they're still learning and growing. And uh, so that's why I put that in there. You know, in that kind of tagline is that you know she doesn't realize how good he is, and that's one of the things that kind of unfolds, and I think is is nice to see throughout the story. Um, cause they are a little bit of foils for each other. You know, uh, Eld is, is very polite. He's, um, aware, I think in ways that Buck probably isn't of some of his flaws and, uh, and takes care to, to try to mitigate those. And Buck is, uh, incredibly intelligent, but not always wise. And I think that's one of the things that folks, you know, are going to find in this book is like some of the most fun things are her being too smart for her own good and getting herself into situations where if she maybe had a little more wisdom rather than intelligence, it wouldn't have unfolded that way. But that's what makes her so fun to write. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'm overanalyzing here, but there's some thing to, as you talk through this, there's something to this notion of so much deference to written knowledge, but so little deference on Buck's behalf to people. And, and it's funny that, you know, people write these books and people are flawed and she just tends not to care about people and their, yeah. <laughs> and, and their uh, positions other than something to be sort of manipulated and levered for, for to further her ends, I guess. Yep, totally. Um, that's that's very much where we see her in book one, and um, you know she does have an entire arc through the the series. So we're going to see that start to start to evolve as she evolves as as a person. Um, but you're right, uh, especially at the very beginning of the book. Um, you know, people are just levers for her to pull to get to the aims that she's aiming for. And while those aims are are lofty and and you know um, likely good aims, uh, the way she gets there, um, she doesn't really care. You know who gets hurt along the way. I want to now, and I want to press on this a lot because I I find this fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- just going back to your your writing habits and your process and the body of work that's come before, um, I read something that you had said about internal and external rewards for writing. Yeah. Um, where, where so that what I had read from you made that seem pretty well considered. How do you think about rewards? How do you incentivize yourself? when it comes to writing. And I ask this from a very, like a, per, a personal perspective, I find writing to be necessary, but I also find it completely excruciating and not, not rewarding in a personal sense. And, and for someone who can write 10 manuscripts before the first one sells is, uh, is uh, fascinating and incredible to me. I mean, where does that come from for you? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, this again, I think, is just so highly individualized uh, across the spectrum. Um, but for me, you know, the internal rewards are are what drives me and, and where all this started. Uh, and so, you know, the the first book I wrote was really just about, hey, I think I, I could write a book and I want to see if I can, and I was able to. Um, and then it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, by which I mean, I sent it out and didn't hear it back from anyone. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, I wrote a book that was cool, but clearly, like, I'm not meant to be a writer. Um, then I went to Afghanistan. And uh, when I came home from Afghanistan, uh, I had a lot of trouble reintegrating into society. It was a very jarring experience to be, you know, um, behind a 50 cal one day driving through, you know, the desert and, and um, uh, all the different environments over there. And then I still had a, uh, a semester, two semesters of college left. 
So I came home and, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, school started up and suddenly I'm, uh, you know, and I foolishly had taken all of my, my, um, my major credits before I left. So I had like a couple of gen eds left basically. So I'm with a bunch of freshmen who are 18 and complaining about the fact that they have to get up for a 9am class. And, uh, it was just, it was very jarring for me. So I had a lot of trouble kind of reintegrating back into society. Um, and I also had just all these ideas floating around in my mind. And so, uh, the second book I wrote was really just about, you know, processing what had happened to me. It wasn't, it wasn't about my experiences. It was a fantasy book, but there was a lot of underlying character themes throughout. I think that probably tied directly in there. And in writing that book, I realized that, you know what, I'm a better person when I'm writing. I'm more empathetic to other people. I'm calmer. Uh, it's, uh, writing for me is very meditative. Um, uh, and not in an intentional way. It just, it just turns into, uh, me into a kind of a meditative processing state. Uh, the other thing too, I think is to write well, you really have to write with empathy. You really have to put your, yourself in the, in the positions of all these different characters, um, to really capture and do them justice, uh, whether it's a good character, um, you know, from a, a moral standpoint or a bad character or somewhere in between, um, doing that over and over again, I think is, is really helpful. So what I discovered is, you know, and I'm just a better person outside of writing in my life when I'm, when I am writing. And so that right there, that's an internal reward because I want to be a better person. I want to be somebody who, uh, folks want to be around and I want to be happy in my life. I don't want to be going through it, you know, feeling like confused and, and upset and just misunderstood. And so that all right there is, is one big internal motivator. Um, the next internal motivator is that, you know, I, uh, I do just get a lot of enjoyment and fun out of, out of seeing this stuff come together. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It's very hard. It doesn't mean that there's not, you know, a point in every story where I'm like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that I've ever written. Uh, this is terrible. It's, yeah. it's not fixable, you know, <laughs> it's over. And I just have to put my head down, keep writing, um, be miserable for a week or two. And then normally I'll, I'll come out of it on the other side and, uh, and be better there. But I mean, I think, I think for me, a lot of it is internal. Um, you know, if, uh, if this publishing deal went away, I'd still continue writing tomorrow. I'd be upset. I wouldn't be happy about it, but that's, that's it for internal. I think you got to be careful on the external side. Um, cause you just have so little control and I don't think anyone realizes until they go through it, how little control you actually have. Um, I mean, I have almost zero control over the success of this book. Uh, I, the only thing I controlled was writing it. Um, you know, I didn't even have a lot of control in, in who bought it, uh, worked with my agent. We came up with a really good plan. We, we pitched to folks, but at the end of the day, I don't control what book that editor bought right before mine. That's exactly like it. Or, you know, what they think the market trends are that tell them that this book would be a bad buy or, you know, the, when it gets in front of the, the accounting folks and they crunch the numbers and think, you know what, we don't think this book's going to sell enough copies. Um, I don't control any of that. And then I definitely don't control when it goes out, you know, who reviews it, who doesn't review it. Does something happen in the world that tanks the market for a couple of weeks? You know, do people's attention go elsewhere? Does another breakout debut come out that same week and everybody's looking at that? Like none of those things are outside of your control. So if you're really focused on external motivators, I think you're going to have a rough go of it. Um, But if you're doing it for personal reasons that would have you writing no matter what, then I think that's where success lies. And that isn't to say that I'm not interested in success. 
Um, you know, it's kind of part of my personality that if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best one doing it. And so I'm constantly trying to refine my craft and trying to get better and better at it. But it's one of those things where, you know, there's no objective better in, in writing and reading and in art generally it's it's really just a subjective thing so trying to get better for myself and then if you know others find that you know to be something that is is really exciting for them then so much the better for it but that's kind of how i think about it i know i know that was a really long-winded answer so hopefully that helps it's well sure i mean it's long-winded because this is something that not just writers but any creative person probably wrestles with their entire career in various ways uh and i'm i'm sure i don't know how long you've been writing but i'm sure that 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 view will continue to evolve and it's something that you maybe had to reckon with early as a writer um as you were struggling is maybe putting putting words in your mouth but as you were seeking to you know get early drafts sold and uh and find your voice and figure out what you were doing with writing i mean i'm i'm sure it was a little bit more emotionally difficult to get, uh, you know, to, to keep yourself going and keep yourself incentivized to submit and, and get out there. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too, right? There's always two sides of the coin. So, um, you know, that second book that I was talking about after I wrote that one, when I finished it, I remember thinking to myself, you know what, it doesn't matter if it takes five books in five years, 10 books in 10 years, like I'm not going to stop because this is, this is so good. Um, and in the moment, I believe that, and I, I believe that overall. But yeah, there have certainly been times, you know, I started getting um, agents asking for the full manuscript based off of query and sample pages from my third book on. Uh, and so, you know, when you're when you're five books into that, and you've had five or six times now where agents are asking to read it and saying, "Hey, thank you, you you know, this is really good. I really like this, but it's not quite for me." And passing you know, it does get hard. Um, you start to sit there and, and really wonder, you know, what's the point of, of doing this? Because it seems like you're just not going to get anywhere. Um, there's, yeah. there's a really good blog post by Jim Butcher from years ago, where he talks about how, you know, only you can kill your dream. And so, you know, only you have the, the control to do that. You know, nobody else does, because the, the, your dream dies when you stop. And so if you never stop, the dream doesn't die. It doesn't mean that you realize the dream, but it never dies. And I would cling to that uh, and, you know, the, the two or three kind of dark points of my writing career pre, pre-agent and uh, pre-publication where it was like, man, I don't know if this is going to happen. Um, but yeah. You can, you can pretty safely take advice from Jim Butcher. <laughs> <laughs> he sold some books over the, over the years. Totally, totally. And I got lucky too. I mean, I, I, um, I got to talk to Brandon Sanderson one-on-one a few times and he was, you know, very much encouraging. And, you know, I think he's been very open about the fact that he wrote about 11 or 12 books before I think it was the seventh book that he wrote actually sold. Um, and, you know, he had told me too that, uh, what what you never hear from a lot of authors is that most of them have been writing for 10 years before they, they actually get published. And certainly there's some that, you know, oh, this is my first book that I wrote a year ago. And now like I'm wildly successful, but that's far outside the norm. And so, you know, I would clean to those things as I was getting closer to that 10 year mark. So I've been writing, you know, pretty consistently now for um, 11 years. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we were getting closer to those 10 years, I was like, oh man, I hope, <laughs> I hope this happens. Uh, and then fortunately it did. Uh, and, and I'll just note, I mean, that's 11 books in 11 years. Um, so Thanks. kudos, kudos for that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of writing. Um, what, did you know that sin was going to be a trilogy 
when you started out with Buck's story? Um, I knew it was going to be a series. I think I actually, I think I broke it down into, um, <laughs> I think I'm trying to remember which ones that I pitched. I think with my agent, I had said, you know, here, here's a way I think it could be a trilogy. Here's a way I think it could be five books. And then here's a way that I think if we wanted to get pretty wild with it, it could be seven to nine books. <laughs> and, uh, he was like, pump, pump the, pump the brakes here. <laughs> yeah. He was like, well, you know, right now everybody's really interested in trilogies. So let's go with that. Um, and, uh, and my editor knew, uh, cause I think, I think Don Juan had mentioned to, to her that, you know, Ryan thinks there's more here if you want it. Um, but right now it's true. The marketplace is very much focused on trilogies, um, for, for obvious reasons, I think, right. You know, that three act structure makes a lot of sense from a, an art perspective and, um, especially with new voices, uh, there's, there's, I think, fantasy right now. Fantasy readers are very leery of getting into something that doesn't look like it has a clear ending point uh, in sight. And so, you know, for my debut, I totally got the idea that let's give them something that's pretty self-contained. They know going into it what they're getting, and, you know, it's not going to grow with the telling, and I'm going to come back to them when they're expecting the final book and say, actually, there's two more coming. Um, so, so, yeah. <laughs> No shade towards George R. R. No, no shade towards anybody. I mean, but I'm like I said, I've, I'm I'm a lifelong reader too, so I, I get where a lot of that frustration comes from across various points. And as a new voice in the in the genre, I totally understand that you know I'm going to be um, living in those shadows. So I think that the trilogy is great the way it is. Uh, instead of being maybe a slower burn, it's definitely kind of a rollicking uh, adventure all the way through. And so I think it's going to be a lot of fun for folks. Um, and in the future, you know, we'll see there, there might be some other, some other stories where I, I tell that are, are longer than three books, but I think it's, it's a good story. Uh, maybe I'm projecting or maybe I'm hearing things that are, are not true, but worth exploring. I, I, I hear in the negotiation with your agent and editor, some willingness to mold to the market and to be marketable. Is that has that been difficult for you? And and I'll I'll ask I'll pre-ask the follow-up question I guess, which is at what point was the sin in the steel done when you entered into your relationship with Dong Won Song or um, you know where where were you in that process of pitching that you you got your agent you got mm -hmm. your deal? No, it's a good question. So I'll answer that one first, and then I'll talk about the the commercialization aspect of it. Um, yeah, the book was the book was completely done. It had a different ending, uh, not not totally different ending. The ending, mm -hmm. the actual very very end of the book is the same as as what I originally wrote, but the third act was structured differently, as I mentioned before, um, when I got Don Juan. And then he and I kind of went back and forth. He wanted to see some some things because he's an editor before, you know, in a previous life, he was an editor at Orbit, um, a very successful one uh, with, you know, um, Shauna McGuire writing as Mira Grant, her feed series. Uh, he did those. Um, he actually acquired the Expanse series, um, although I think he departed Orbit before they got to work too much on it. Uh, he did some work with Brent Weeks. So he is uh, he's an amazing editor in his own right. And that was one of the things that attracted me to him. Um so we made some edits, nothing major, but definitely made some some edits. Uh, again, like I was an underwriter. I think the first draft that I submitted to him was 99,000 words. And then I think we got it up to about 110,000 and then uh, started pitching to editors and, and houses. 
um, you know, tour uh, expressed interest. And we kind of had a conversation with, with Melissa Ansinger, who's my editor at tour. She's amazing. And she really got the book and got the concept and had a bunch of questions. Like she wanted to know more about the world and about all these different things. I could tell she was excited. So that was cool. And then, you know, the finished product that we, that's, that's uh, on shelves today is 123,000, I believe. So it added about, you know, about, um, 20% to, to what we originally started with there. Um, and that's how we got there. But, uh, as far as, as far as, you know, marketability and, and molding, you know, I'm, I've been pretty open to, to tweaks and changes and, and thoughts and, and stuff that, you know, both Dong Wan has had because he's, uh, you know, very much has his, his, um, finger to the pulse of the marketplace. And then obviously Tor as well, who's, who's in the business of, of making books. I don't think I've ever felt like I'm, you know, uh, um, you know, losing my integrity or like, you know, having to make a decision that I don't believe in. That's never happened. At the end of the day, Tor has always made it very clear that, you know, this is my book, my story. If I hate something that they suggest, I don't have to do it. Uh, but often what I find is when I'm, when I, when, you know, there's a suggestion made, I'm pretty excited by it uh, because it, it sometimes opens up a, a avenue that I hadn't considered before. And then that gets ideas going. There's been a few times where like a minor suggestion has come out of it. Like, nah, I'm not really interested in that. Or that's, that's not the story I'm trying to tell them. We've moved on. Um, but I think this is very much a collaborative process. I know there's authors out there who, you know, they told their story and it's their story and they don't want anybody to mess with it. I've never been like that. I think, uh, when you're working with great people, they're just going to make something that's good, great themselves. And so I've been very open to their feedback so far. Um, and it's been, it's been really good. And so I think that the finished product today, that 123,000 word book is far, far better than the 99,000 word book that was, that was me solo. Um, so it's, I think it's been a, a net gain overall. Was that process what you expected, uh, versus writing your other drafts? And I, I, I think I can sort of, um, assume the answer based on you being a self-professed underwriter and, and building it out from there. It just maybe never got to that point with your other manuscripts. Yeah, totally. I mean, where you would build. It yeah, in, yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, I would, um, you know, I would take it as far as I could. And the, the advice that I never saw advice about, you know, go back through and add stuff. It was always, you need to cut because you put in too much. Um, and so hopefully if somebody's out there and they've, they've been facing this where like I would, it would pain me to be, be making these cuts. Cause I felt like it was making the book worse, but then I thought, well, what do I know? I don't have, you know, that eye to, to know any better. So I just need to trust this. And I honestly think that probably held me back. I think if I had gone back through with the thought of, you know what, I probably need to look for scenes that, you know, could use an extra beat or, you know, maybe I need to add a chapter here or that sort of thing. I think I would have gotten um, published quicker uh, because of that. So that to me was probably one of the biggest eye-opening things. Um, it surprised me with book one. It surprised me with book two. Um I, uh, I just finished book three a couple of days ago, so I'm sure I'll be surprised there as well. Although I'm expecting that, you know, maybe there will be some, some work that I need to do to add it, but I love writing and I hate cutting. So, uh, it actually works out really well for me. I don't mind getting back, you know, a couple of pages of suggestions on like, can you add 10,000 words? Like, sweet. I'll do that any day of the week. If you want me to go through the entire thing and cut out 10,000, that's where it's going to hurt. Yeah, you're um you're you're getting rid of pieces of yourself <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. a certain extent. Has anything about the reception to the book changed how you think about um d- drafting the rest of the trilogy? 
or maybe we're too early since we're just like six weeks out from publication, or maybe that's not a factor. But Tor did a really good job of getting out a lot of advanced reader copies to try to generate interest from reviewers and and folks on Goodreads. And you know, um, there's there's uh, you know close to 150 I think ratings and 100 reviews on Goodreads already, um, even though it's only been out a month. So definitely a lot of feedback. I don't look at all of it. Um, I do look at some of it. Uh, I have a couple of people I trust too. I'm basically like, hey, if you see a common theme in folks that are giving this like two and three stars, something's wrong. Like, let me know. Or if you know you have folks that are giving it four and five stars and they're calling out something, like, let me know that. And it's something that I'll consider. But I don't think you should ever really write by committee. I think it goes back to that idea of you got to write for yourself first because you're the you're the one guaranteed fan, and then you just need to you know have faith that others uh, that you're not alone and that others are going to find something in that too. Do you read the two and three star reviews or the one star reviews? If there are um, any, I did and not all of them. Uh, so early on, so this is funny. I, you know, uh, the advice is never read the reviews. Certainly I never comment on reviews. If somebody tags me in like a positive sure, one, then I'll, sure. I'll boost it out there and say, Hey, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Cause that, that makes me feel good. Um, if somebody like rips me, you know, a new one, I'm not going to like tell them how they're wrong. Uh, that's their reaction. Uh, everybody brings something to the page, right? As a reader. So you can't control that somebody. So oftentimes, you know, if I'm looking and I'm seeing like these, like one or two star reviews, not that there's a lot, but there's a few, um, I'm like, Oh, they just didn't get it. And that's okay. The book wasn't for them. You know, their life experience is such that what they, what they came and sat down and read, you know, uh, they, they brought themselves to the page and it wasn't matching up. And that's, that's cool. There's other books out there for them. Uh, It'd be cooler if maybe they just kept that to themselves and didn't feel the need to put me on blast. But, <laughs> but I totally get it. So you got to take your lumps. Um, but I think you know, there's been some really incredible reviews that have uh, that have made me feel good. And again, this gets to that external reward. You got to be careful with that sort of thing. But it's been really flattering and nice to to see folks getting some of the things that I was talking about with like trauma and found family and, and mental, you know, mental health issues that these folks are going through. And then, you know, some of the librarian uh, uh, journals out there have given some star reviews and I've gotten some shout outs from them. And as a kid who grew up in a rural area, uh, libraries were basically what, you know, kept me entertained and kept me going through the summer months when I was kind of locked away because, you know, until you could drive a car, you couldn't really go anywhere. Uh, so that's been, that's been all good stuff. So you got to take the good with the bad. I think you, your, uh, philosophy is very, uh, well adjusted (laughs) and very sort of, um, I don't know how to characterize it, but uh, it, it's not reflective of the, um, Oh, maladjusted is not the right word, but it's not reflective necessarily of the perspective of some of your characters <laughs> in Sin of the Steel, who don't have as healthy a as a healthy a relationship with the world as as you certainly seem to, at least from this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you put all your trauma, put all your all your trauma and bad thoughts into them, I suppose. Yeah, that's right? part of it. I think that's that empathy thing too. It's just like recognizing that you know not everybody is me, and and you know you're getting you're getting like the. Uh, the Ryan who's had, you know, a few months to sit with those things and kind of process them. Certainly if, if I read a uh, one-star review and you talk to me in the next 30 seconds, I'm probably not going to be as calm and cool about it. Uh, but overall, I mean, I do try to try to understand that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think uh, well-adjusted people probably, and as far as characters go, um, don't always make the most interesting stories. I think sometimes the flaws of our characters are, are what really drive stories to be intriguing and interesting. So, you know, exploring those is, is always yeah. something that's, that's good to do. For sure. 
Well, so we've talked about um, relationships with audience and reviews and things and, and talked about things getting in the way of writing. Um, obviously, your debut novel came out in the middle of, in its own right, a traumatic uh, global pandemic. I mean, what, what did you anticipate from the from your relationship or what did you want out of your relationship with your audience? And do you, do you thrive or did you look forward to that relationship with your readers? Are you a con goer? Did you uh, anticipate that you would be doing that? And, and I guess how, how has that like yeah. the roadshow um, changed, changed things or, or forced you to change your approach to, to the day? Yeah. I mean, I, everything changed really. I thought 2020 was going to be like the year of Ryan Van Loan, not for everybody else, but for me, like I was like, this is the year I've been working towards this right, right. and <laughs> it's going to be great. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have book three. My goal is to have book three done before book one hits the shelf. So I don't have to worry about like, you know, like anything. It's just, it's done and, and, and ready to go tour. You know, I've been really lucky. Um, uh, tour has put a lot of emphasis and weight behind the book. And I really, you know, I don't take that for granted at all. I very much appreciate it. And so we had a lot of plans. Like I know that they had sent out a lot of copies to managers of stores and stuff like that to drive interest. And so, you know, I was looking forward to that. I um, I do go to cons. I'm not a huge con goer, by which I mean I don't go to every single con. I'm not constantly on the circuit, but I try to go to a couple a year. And you know, I was going to go to Balticon um, because uh, I live in in Pennsylvania. It's not too far of a drive for me. I was going to do some signings, uh, both in in locally, and then you know, I was going to try to get into New York City and and do a few there. And so I, I was looking forward to that part of it. Uh, and obviously, all of that changed and went away. Um, now, the you know the, the flip side of that has been that Tor did a really good job in pivoting. Balticon did a really good job in pivoting, and so did some other folks, and set up virtual events, which honestly were probably much much better attended from a, a numbers perspective than if it had been in person. So, you know, Balticon, I think they capped the number at at a hundred or something like that per panel. And uh, all my panels were were filled, which never would have happened at a regular con. You know, you, you get somewhere between like twenty and fifty people in a room, and that's that's a pretty good turnout. Yeah. So so that was great. Tour did a tour con, and there was thousands of people that t- tuned into that. They've they've set up some bookstore conversations, and we've gotten some good turnout there. Um, you know, Read Pop that does the comic cons had an online metaverse, and uh, Tour invited me there as well. So it's been very flattering in that regard, and I think I've probably hit. It a wider audience that way. The flip side is it's, it's all one-sided, right? So I'm not looking at faces. I'm not seeing, you know, how they're reacting to this, to, to my presentation, you know, do they dig it? Do they not? Um, there's been, there's been literally almost outside of reviews, no feedback. And so that as somebody who's very analytical and numbers driven, um, has been difficult to process, especially after after the book launch, just to be honest. It's kind of like there's all this lead up to it. Everybody's really excited. Uh, everybody's pushing it. The book goes out. Uh, everybody's talking about it for that week. And then the next week, well, now Tor has their next books coming out. And so now they're focused on that. And, you know, people, if they ordered it, it's going to take a little while to get there. They have to read it. Maybe it's, you know, third or fourth in their to be read pile. So, like, you're not going to get feedback from folks for weeks to months after the fact, and it's going to trickle in. And so the, the lack of, you know, did the book do okay? Did it not do okay? That has probably been the thing that I wasn't prepared for the most and that really, really hit home. So I'm not sure if in-person events would have, would have helped with that or not, but it, 
that combined with the fact that, you know, you're home all the time now in these pandemic times has not been, you know, the greatest mental space for the summer to be in, but, uh, but it's getting better. Well, it sounds like you're weathering it. Okay. Productivity wise, at least. And you're getting out yeah, there for the book. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where you just gotta, uh, just gotta show up. I think, uh, 90% of the battle oftentimes as silly as it is, is just showing up and then the rest takes care of itself from there. I feel like that's a good sentiment to end on. Just show up. If there's any advice to take from this conversation, if you want to do something like write a novel, just show up. I think so. Right. I think, uh, you know, um, uh, butt in chair, hands on keyboard is, uh, is the way to get a novel done at the end of the day. So Ryan Van Loan, thanks for, uh, thanks for the chat and thanks for being a part of this conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Episode 24 of You May Contribute a Verse has come to an epic climax. What we've seen from author Ryan Van Loan is just the beginning. Do find a time and a place to enjoy the sin in the steel, his debut novel, whenever you can. Find out more about Ryan at ryanvanloan.com or Ryan Van Loan on the socials. That's R-Y-A-N-V-A-N-L-O-A-N. As for me... You May Contribute a Verse is a homespun production, as always, produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by me, Josh Munkin, from the darkness and comfort of my basement. The show got a website. Hit me up at verse.show or find the show on Twitter and Facebook as at verse show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. Find me on everything as Josh Monkwords, all one word. The artwork for You May Contribute a Verse is an amazing picture commissioned for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin, just turned age seven. That's why this podcast is a little bit late. Love you, Charlie. The show's music is provided graciously by Robbie Zarr via tracks from his album, A Tragic But Happy Horse. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T dot com. If you would be so kind, however you're listening to this, let me know if you do via rating, which is nice, or just a quick message. It means a lot. And remember the answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. Verse.